0: Well, good morning, and Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Um, This will be the first of, I think, three times that you'll hear from this pulpit of Merry Christmas to get us going, because uh, today is our Christmas Celebration Sunday. Uh, There'll be a program after lunch here back in the um, sanctuary, and uh, it is a good time um, our kids are, are wonderful in, uh, in kind of the Christmas performance stuff. And it's a good time for us to celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, um, in this Advent season, and maybe that term is not that regularly used and, and uh, you know, uh, unfamiliar to you, but we are in the Advent season, meaning that we are celebrating the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, or as we've referred to it as, as Christmas, Christmas. Um, And as we do that, just a short Advent series uh, that I thought might be encouraging to you where we kind of get our minds around the significance of Christ's birth. I I know to some degree it's like, well, don't don't we hear this all the time? And isn't this so obvious? It is. But uh, in particular, what might be helpful to us or I hope is encouraging to us is to take some of our classic Christmas hymns and to think about some of that language And to look at the scriptures and see how that unfolds. And uh, for this morning, I thought we would consider particularly the first hymn that we sang at the opening of our service, Angels We Have Heard on High. And and as we consider some of the things that are mentioned in that that wonderful and ancient Christmas hymn, that we might be reminded of the deep blessing um, of having Jesus, um, the Christ Our Savior and Lord born on Christmas Day. Our passage, the text that we'll unfold, comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Um, We'll look at verses uh, 6. We'll read from verse 5, but we'll look at verses 6 uh, through 10. So as you turn there, let me just give you, I don't know, just a couple of points, um, data points for us to consider this particular hymn. Angels we have heard on high. Remember that's angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains and the mountains. All right, Gloria in excelsis Deo. You guys are familiar, right? We just sang it. It's one of those those interesting, and that Gloria in excelsis Deo is a Latin phrase, and we'll talk about what that means, but it, it simply means Gloria, glory to, in excelsis, in the highest, And God as a subject. In other words, glory to God in the highest, repeated again and again. It really flows out of Luke chapter 2, that whole story of how the angels are singing and how they declare for the shepherds that are gathered to not fear because of the great news of good joy, or good news of great joy, right? Um, That there will be for them... Born in this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then they break out in glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That, that's where the hymn is set from. But this is probably one of the most earliest hymns that we have. In fact, it doesn't have an author because it's so ancient that we're not sure who penned these original words. There's some tradition it's a little suspect, but there's some tradition that claims that it goes back to 129, 129, 129 years after the, the, the birth of Jesus, right, um, back to the Church of Rome. It's originally in Latin, later it's taken up by the French, right, and then it's uh, eventually translated into our English. And it does transport us back to that day when the angels declare glory in the highest to God. And that's what we want to set our minds around. Because even as we think about this, this thing that we are so familiar with in terms of Christmas time, angels singing, glory to God in the highest. The question that we should always ask is: why? I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, Jesus is born, but like, you know, there's a lot of stuff he has to do. There's a lot to be accomplished, but why is it such a big deal that Christ is born? Like, like. Why is this particular advent or this particular moment in history so significant that the angelic beings would burst forth in praise? And I think that's really the, the, the cause, the, the point, um, the focus that Christmas should have for anyone that is a child of God. Gift giving is great, right? Eggnog. Not so much, right? But, you know, whatever else you do. Decorating Christmas lights, fantastic. You know, I saw a car in downtown L.A. the other day. They somehow put Christmas lights all over the outside. I'm, I'm for all of it, you know. Reindeer ears, whatever. You know, enjoy Christmas for all the good things that it has. But do not forget that the most significant thing that happened on that, on that, that, that afternoon, morning, I don't know, that day is that Jesus Christ was born, and it was a big deal enough <clears throat> that the angels themselves burst forth in, in angelic praise. And I think that should be the same for each of us that calls upon the name of Christ. Let me read to, a, to you the text. We're going to start right at the end of verse 4. I know that's confusing, and it's because the, the phrase in love probably adds with verse 5. Our ESV probably has that in terms of the the Um, The sentence structure, correct. And it starts in verse, end of verse 4. And we'll read through verse 10. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come before you, celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, would you remind us, that the wonder of that event is for us. It is indeed for us, but it ought to bring you all the glory. That even the songs that we praise, they remind us of how broken, empty, and lost we were without our Savior. But Lord, it also reminds us that the kind of God we worship would send his own son to take our place in death. Father, may we join the angelic chorus in praising you, <clears throat> in exalting you, and lifting up glory to you in the highest, to the highest degree that we can manage. With our lives, with our words, with our prayers, with our intentions, with, our, with everything that we are, may we learn to seek to please and glorify you. Because our salvation, Lord, is, um, is secured because of the birth of Christ, because of his perfect life. And his death on a cross for us. And we're reminded that that incredibly high cost to rescue us is not just for us. It's not just so that we could be free and to live the life that we want to live. But so that we might be redeemed and we might become yours. And that what is impossible in us has been accomplished in you. In the person of Jesus Christ. So we praise you. As we think of this Advent season, and as we think of uh, even the lyrics of what the angels sing, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> oh, I'll just make the motion, and then you guys could just can do it because I, I don't know what's going on, right? So, so. Uh, the outline is kind of based on uh, the Luke ten passage. Glory in the highest. Your Savior is born. Who is Christ the Lord? So we're looking at Ephesians one six through ten. But we want to look. We want to look at yes at Luke chapter two, uh, verses ten through fourteen. Very briefly, I'll just read it to you so you're reminded of the Christmas story. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, and the city of David the Savior is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So let's see if that starts. there he goes. Um, so angels are praising God in Luke chapter two, and that's really where that hymn comes from. It begins with the idea of their extolling God with glory in the highest, right? Yeah, this is not working. Glory in the highest. <laughs> this is going to be a rough morning, I think, right? Because uh, if this isn't working, then I don't know. Yeah, I'll try to turn it on off. No, all right. Glory in the highest. Starting verse, verse six. But let's read again from the end of verse four and verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, um, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, chapter or verse six. I just wanted to highlight to kind of capture what this idea of the angels crying out glory in the highest is all about. Point A, the praise of his glorious grace, right? Look, look Look at that phrase in verse six, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. This is the final goal of the Christmas season. This is the final goal of all of salvation, Okay, that that that's the song, right? Angels just we have heard on I, which which is good. Let's let's roll to the song. Oh, did we do the song? All right, but glory, right? Gloria in excelsis Deo. They are singing glory to God in the highest. In verse six, speaks of that same idea to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, all that God has accomplished in Ephesians chapter one. Remember, uh, Ephesians chapter one. Um, uh, I, it runs from verse three all the way to verse 14, and all of it is just one long sentence, one long praise. The things that are mentioned in that long praise are things like how we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, how we are chosen in him before the laying of the foundation of the world, right? How we are predestined by him to be adopted as sons. Right? All of this to the praise of his glory. That's the phrase. All of this to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, in all of history and beyond, when we get to eternity future, when human history has ended and we are around the throne, when we are are subduing the created universe, when we're exploring it to its potential and highlighting the created God who has made magnificent things and we are living without sin for his purposes, all of it. We'll extol his glory. We will glorify him, certainly. But that phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, reminds us that one of the most resounding things that we will praise him for in all of eternity is his graciousness to sinners. The gospel song doesn't end when sin does. In all of eternity, we will always sing out the praise of God's glorious grace it is glory it is grace it is the two combined in the sense that it is about his glory displayed in his grace that's the point that's what the angels sing that's what every understanding um, believer and child of God should have in their soul that their life and their existence is not for themselves but it's for the praise of his glorious grace. That every breath that you take is because he is gracious to you. That the life that you have is because he is gracious to you. That the hope that you have, even if things are bad now, the hope that you have in eternity to come is because he has demonstrated his grace towards you. That should bring him glory. That should cause you to exalt. And this is why the heavenly host bursts forth in praise because this is the kind of God we worship. His glory is intricately tied together with how he's gracious to us, how he has rescued us, how he has rescued us that we didn't deserve his rescue. And he has done it without charging us or demanding of us anything but to trust To believe and take joy in his son. This is what it means to praise his glorious grace. And this is, I think, the hallmark of calling out glory in the highest. But the second part of verse 6 says this, point B. He has blessed us in the beloved. He has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 6 says this, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In the Beloved, and it's a fantastic phrase because Paul takes the word for grace and, and he probably invents this word. He takes right, the noun grace and he turns it into a verb so that the phrase could actually be translated with which he has graced us, right? The which being his grace. In other words, he has graced us, he has be graced us, verb, with his grace, It is his grace with which he has begraced us. Okay, that's the best way to say it. The third time was the best, right? That's the idea. In other words, grace upon grace for us in the beloved one, in the one that is cherished and beloved by the Father. The Son of God is born in Bethlehem for a purpose, not just because it's just kind of a random series of things or God was interested in what's going on from a very human perspective, but because he had a plan. According to Ephesians 1, before the laying of the foundation of the world, before the universe in its material uh, substance was created, he had a plan to send his son to rescue sinners. Yes, before even sinners existed, God knew that he would send his son to rescue us from our sin, to be grace us—that's how His grace has worked. So the final goal of this universe, then, right? If if we take this, if we take this into account, that um, that the work of Christ, His His death or his life, his death, his resurrection has all been for the sake of displaying how gracious God is to those that do not deserve it, then we should exalt glory in the highest. We should praise his glorious grace because we have been begraced by his beloved one. We are connected with Christ. And can I say this, what that suggests to us is that the final purpose of Christ's birth It's not merely to rescue me from my sins. It is that he, right, would receive the praise for the kind of God that he is. It is remarkable that God would send his son to pay the penalty of my sins, to pay the penalty of your sins. But this is the kind of gracious God we serve. This is the kind of gracious God that we love. And this is why he deserves our attention, right? Our lives and our worship. Glory to God in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo. That that's the chorus of angels we have heard on high. Our second point. We go to your savior is born, verse 7. Look at verse 7 there. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The second stanza, if we look at the next slide. The second stanza in um, Angels We Have Heard on High is shepherds. Why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome? What the gladsome? What the gladsome tidings be, which inspire your heavenly song. It means that what is so gladdening, right, about your tidings, about your singing. Like what you notice, and they capture this right. Why are the humans, right? We we talked about the angels. They get the grand perspective and they think God deserves all the glory in the highest. But the humans, why are they so joyful? It's a baby, bro, right? Hundreds born in the world every day, maybe thousands. I don't know right? It's a baby. But why is that so significant? Because it's not just a baby. It is the Savior of the world. That was the message of the angels that unto you is born in the city of David, right? Your Savior, Christ the Lord. He has come to save us from our sins. And so the shepherds, maybe not knowing much theology or anything else, they burst out in joyful strains. They joined the angelic chorus. The idea of the song is that they are so delighted. Why? Because their Savior is born. See, that, that, that's what we're talking about. Point two, right? Um, A... We have been redeemed by his blood. Verse 7, in talking about the barakah, this great um, hymn of blessing in the opening chapter of Ephesians, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. We we talked about the term redemption before, right? Redemption is a term that we could translate ransom. It's a marketplace term. It means that you paid for someone's freedom. It's the ransom paid to let someone go free. I mean, in world events right now, we understand the, uh, the horror and the and the the, the terribleness. Right? Of human sin when it comes to hostages and children and helpless individuals, and the idea that we would try to pay whatever price is necessary for their redemption, for their freedom. That that's where our term comes from. That's where the term you know originates. It means that in the Old Testament, it means that in the New Testament, as as kind of the base word, But, but so that we get our minds around how God uses that term in his word. In the Old Testament in particular, the concept of redemption is usually and often tied with what God has done in rescuing Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Right? You find that in the poetry, you find that in the, in the prophets where God often says, I rescued you or I redeemed you out of the hands or out of slavery from Egypt. I rescued you out of harm. I rescued you out of, of, you know, that which is a terrible circumstance, and I brought you out by my own hand. But I think what flavors it for me better is the story of Ruth. And for a long time, I'll be honest with you, when I first, you know, read the story of Ruth, et cetera, you keep kind of running across this term like this kinsman, redeemer, and you're like, what in the world? Like, what does redemption have to do with them? They just got married. Like, why, why, are we, why are we so excited about that, right? But there's a reason why. Because the idea of redemption is tied around not just you are, you are in bondage, you're in slavery, but it's also about your helplessness, your hopelessness. Ruth was a Moabitess. And if you know nothing about Moabites, right, they're enemies of Israel. so She was an outsider. She was a Gentile. She was not a Jew. She was married to a Jewish man. And they died early, and she didn't even have kids, and so she was a widow. And as a widow, what were her her prospects? What could she do? And the answer was nothing. She came with her mother-in-law, who was also a widow, Naomi, and came back to Israel, but she was an outsider, a foreigner, had no husband, had no children, and so what could she do? She could do the one thing that all the Gentiles who had no, you know, who had no station, no ability, no material comfort, right? She would glean the leftovers after they harvested their wheat, and she would glean leftovers like a beggar to prepare food for her and her mother-in-law. You get the idea? Widowed, helpless, destitute. And yet, there is the potential that a particular individual could redeem her. What does that mean? Well, he's a kinsman, meaning that he is a distant relative of her, of her you know, deceased husband. So he could redeem her, meaning that if he was willing to marry her, he could bring her into his household, take care of her, cast his his wings over her for her protection, for her goodness to bless the rest of her days on earth. That's the point. So when you see the redeemer, right? In Boaz, it's not about rescue from sin. No, it's not, but it is rescue from everything that is broken, destitute, and helpless. Ruth has no hope in this life. She should eat whenever meals present themselves. She will fade away and eventually die and no one will make a grave for her. But instead, she is redeemed. And see, the term redemption then begins to get filled with this idea that God cares for us despite our destitution, our lack of any ability, our inability even to honor or to bless him. We deserve none. And yet God has chosen to redeem us. And it tells us how, particularly in this first phrase, through his blood. The idea of through his blood speaks of the blood of Christ. And the, 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 the word itself reminds us of Leviticus 17, that there must be blood for life. Meaning that someone has to die for your sins. Someone has to die for my sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins forever, according to Hebrews chapter 10. So the question is, what must happen? Either you have to spend eternity paying for your sins as is right before a holy, just, and all-knowing God. Right? The worst judge you can have is the judge that knows your thoughts your motives, and could accurately tell you every single thing that you have done, thought, or desired to do, right? And he has it all perfectly laid out. He knows it all. Your guilt is thorough. There must be life for life. And he will accept the payment of Christ's death, his blood, his once-for-all payment in your place as a substitute, What you should pay. So, redeemed by his blood means that we have nothing, and Christ paid everything, right, so that our sins might be paid in full. 1 Peter 1 18 through 19 says this. Knowing that you were ransomed, same kind of terminology, a synonym to redeemed, from this futile, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. See, what's interesting about that phrase, perishable things like silver and gold, the reason why silver and gold and precious metals are precious is because they don't perish. Right? That's why they used to put, I don't think they put silver in your fillings anymore. Right now they put, what do they put? I don't know, they put some weird white stuff. But, right, they used to use, like, gold and silver. Why? Because they don't don't perish. But in the words of Scripture, it's saying silver and gold, in eternity sense, they will perish. But more precious than precious metals and things that we think don't, don't perish is the imperishable, verse 19, right? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. We were purchased. right? We were redeemed. We were ransomed by the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and His death. His blood spilled means that life for life. His crucifixion means that He died the death that we deserve to die. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are redeemed by his blood, according to the first part of verse 7. Point B, the second part of verse 7, right? the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are forgiven our trespasses. If the first part talked about how he redeems us, the second part talks about how our debts are now permanently canceled. Forgiveness is that, is that remission, a dismissal, a release from, um, from debt. A cancellation of things that you, you, you owe. And the idea is as far as the east is from the west, right? God has cast our debt away. It is canceled. It is gone. If redemption is how we are purchased, right, from bondage to freedom, forgiveness means that all debts now are canceled. Listen, the, the worst thing that we might think in terms of what the gospel is as Christians is that the gospel is God just loves us so much that he kind of pretends that we didn't sin. God, a just God, and an all-knowing God knows every occasion, every moment, every sin of your life. And every one of them must be paid in full. See, it's the paid in full part that is so remarkable. Christ paid our sins in full. Our debts are canceled. He has forgiven Right, He has forgiven our trespasses. Now, this is a word that I think we get. right. You trespass on people's property because you go beyond the borders that are allowed to you. Morally or spiritually speaking, it means that you have wandered from what what is the right path or the true place to go. It is the intentional wandering, though. And when trespass is used as a synonym for sin in Scripture, it's talking about how we have intentionally chosen to go on a path that we know to be wrong. Well, Christ has died to set us free by paying our ransom. He has died to set us free, and he has canceled our debt. Listen, if you're a Christian in this room, and you struggle with like guilt, etc., that first instinct to feel that guilt is okay. Because it means that you have done something wrong. But you could take that to the Lord and you can be cleansed of that, right? Because if you're a genuine believer, of a true child of God, you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then you know that, that you are your debt is fully canceled. Your past sins, even the sins that you have yet to commit, they are all canceled in Christ. So, 1 John 1:9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love those two words. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful, and I think we, we, we intuitively get that, that if we confess our sins, he never fails to eradicate, to wipe away our debt, to forgive us our sins. He's faithful to it. But the just part, he is faithful and just, meaning justice or righteous, He doesn't just wink and pretend that you didn't do it. He pays our debt in full to such a degree that he will forgive us our sins. And it says more, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He continues to cleanse us. He continues to make us right. He continues to grant to us a good conscience, even though we shouldn't have a good conscience. We're sinners. That's what we excelled at. And yet Christ has rescued us from our sins. So, point two, um, redeemed through his blood was A, forgiven of our trespasses is B, and C, according to the riches of his grace is C. The third part of verse seven says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, according to the riches of his grace. According to is one of those great prepositions that we should get our minds around well. It doesn't just say, well, out of his riches, you know, he's really wealthy, so he doesn't mind giving you a little extra tip, right? It's saying according to. It means that the manner of how he applies his grace to us is commensurate or is in line with what he is like in terms of the wealth of his grace, Right? In other words, it's, it's the, the manner, the, the style, right? In accordance with means that it is exactly as you would expect from someone that is crazy wealthy in his grace. This is what God is like. He is the kind of God that is saturated with his goodness. And as a result of that, he would, he would prepare. Even before he creates a physical universe, he prepares for the sin of humanity and he prepares a savior to rescue them. Because they have no hope in themselves, Ephesians two seven talks about the immeasurable riches of His kindness. Romans two four says the riches of His kindness. Romans eleven thirty three says the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God is crazy wealthy in terms of how good He is. That's what we mean by according to the riches of His grace. It's in a manner appropriate to how good and gracious. And magnificent God is. I think there's a verse at the end of this, right? Ephesians two, four through nine. I can't. I can't read that. I gotta turn to it. Ephesians four is too small, right? Four through nine. Ephesians two. Sorry, verse four says, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches. See that again. The great love, the rich in mercy, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, if you are capturing the concept of God's grace it is. I think the first thing we think of is, is that it is, is a kindness. It is a mercy. It is an undeserved right expression of his love and goodness. That's all true. God is wealthy in it. He is overflowing in it. And your salvation is predicated on a God that is so abundant in, his, in the wealth of his goodness towards you. Not because you deserve it. Because that's who he is. And the greatest expression of that is that he has sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins. So Christian, whenever we think of this, and I I imagine for some of us in the room, um, the holidays are not an easy time. It might be a time where you have lost a loved one, right? And it's a reminder of that. It might be a time when you recognize, right, some of the struggles you have in terms of loneliness or, right? Like there's a lot of junk that we live with. Uh, through the brokenness of this world. And of all the things that might possibly happen to us, whether tragedy, difficulty, struggle, or even persecution, the one thing that we can never question is whether or not God loves us. Why? Because historically, he's already proven that he does. Because he sent Jesus Christ to be born in a manger, to live a perfect life, and to lay down that life on our behalf. This is what we mean by your savior is born in point two, right? Glory to God in the highest, which is the song says, right? And then the shepherds sing these gladsome, gladsome tidings, right? Which inspire a heavenly song. What is their joy? Is because their savior is born. This is our joy. Grumpy Christians should be an oxymoron, right? I know all of us might be a little grumpy before we get our coffee in us, right? And stuff and we might, but, but, but it's an oxymoron. If we think rightly about what we are and what we deserve and who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us, we should be joyful. We should exult and desire to glorify God in the highest because that's what he deserves. Because the birth of Christ means that our Savior is born. Our final point, who is Christ the Lord. And this is, again, our outline is based on what the angels say, right? What that song is, uh, is speaking of from Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men, because your Savior is born in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Verse, verses 8 through 10 says this. The grace, right, I'll just kind of add that before we read verse 8 because we're picking it up in mid-sentence. The grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, this is uh, I think this is the fourth stanza in um, Angels We Have Heard. See him in a manger laid, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. Mary Joseph, lend your aid. Sing with us our Savior's birth. In the Luke 2 passage, it speaks of Jesus Christ is born, right, um, in a manger, the King, the Lord. And so as we think about who Christ the Lord is, Christ the Lord, the newborn King, that's the, that's the one I should have put in, that, that's like, Verse 3, right? Christ the Lord, the newborn king. That, that was a little bit better here. But, but point A, grace that makes known to us what Christ has accomplished. Verse 8 says, which he lavished upon us. In other words, grace, right? God is wealthy in his grace and he lavishes it upon us. Lavishing is like, is like an interesting term. It means that something is just kind of lathered on, right? It's a... Uh, um, like, you know, I don't usually eat pancakes, but if I have pancakes, I love it with a ton of butter. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm all whipped butter on pancakes. That is good stuff. And then if you, you know, because if, if my wife is watching, then I have to get a little tiny butter and then kind of spread it really thin. So you got a little tiny saltiness from that. But if nobody's watching, then you just lavish it up on there, right? Like, it is, like, covered in that golden goodness. And then you pour maple syrup over that, and every bite is that buttery, sweet. That's how pancakes are meant to be eaten. I think... I think not just pancakes, you could probably eat cardboard like that and that would be like delicious, right? Because it's that buttery, that's what we mean by lavish. God has lavished upon us his grace and the expression of that. In other words, one of the avenues, if you say, well, what does it look like that God has lavished upon us, his graciousness? That he has been so good to us that he's piling on, right? How good he could be to us. Well, apparently he does it particularly well in the area of our knowledge. It says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Three different terms, right, for what happens between our ears. In all wisdom and insight, and those two terms are meant to cover all of the idea of, of you know, collective um, human thinking. In fact, particularly human thinking. It means that wisdom is that idea that you understand how a thing is laid out. It's intricacies. You understand its depth. Insight means you understand how to navigate, how to use that for good purposes. It's more utilitarian. And he's saying on both. God has lavished upon us in terms of our salvation doctrinal truth that we might understand and dig deeper into. And might grow in terms of understanding with our minds comprehensively how good God is theologically. And on the other hand, to apply that in a way into our lives, into our thinking, into our arguments, into how to encourage others to follow Christ, right? With insight. Like it matters. Making those good. So you have all of that, wisdom and insight combined in us, in, in, in gospel truthfulness, made known to us because of his grace. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Grace has been made known, has been used to make known to us every good thing that has yet to be revealed about what he desires. Right, that's what that word will means. It implies. Right? Something of a, a desire, not simply what he will accomplish. It is his desired purposes. And it, we, when our ESV translates according to his purpose, that last part, that middle part of verse nine, according to his purpose, that term for purpose is a, is a Greek word that literally, right? If you transcribe it literally, it means his good thought. He has a purpose and his purpose has good intentions. So our NASB would translate his kind intention. The New King James would translate his good pleasure. The idea being that God has not just graced us with salvation, a cancellation of debt, but he has made known to us what the deep things of salvation might be. He has given us the doctrinal truth of the gospel so that we might marvel and that we might apply that to our lives in such a way that God has given to us a good purpose. He's revealed it to us. He's made it accessible to us. He's given us purpose in this life. You think that your life is better served, right? by leisure and consumption without purpose. And you're absolutely mistaken. That is the one greatest falsehood that I think we imbibe, right, in this world. Is that if I just had so much that I just need to lift a pinky and then people will run to my attention and give me what I want in any given moment, that would be true living. The living as we are created From the very beginning of our creation as a humanity, right, it involves purpose. You need something that you are after, something that you pursue. You need something to live for that is greater than yourself. You know, when God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, he commanded them, right, to take dominion over the earth, to subdue it. And what I think he meant by that is that they would explore, they would understand they would, they, would, they would utilize every capacity in them they, that, like their God, their creator, that they would create, right? And in their creation, they would make things and advance things and explore things and find wonders. There's purpose in our human existence. Not just to what, what is the biological definition of life? That it, it eats, it poops, and it breathes, and then it dies, right? So, I mean, bacteria fits in that category, all right? Human beings fit in that category. Slugs. I say slugs like that because they're gross, right? All right. Spiders. I don't mind spiders. You, you might hate spiders. Snakes. Whatever you hate or don't like. I mean, that, that's the point. All those fit in that, those categories of biological life. Spiritually speaking, though, we need a purpose, and God has set forth his purpose, his good intention, for us in Christ. It says which the last part of verse 9 which he set forth in Christ is point B. There is a good purpose that God has for us and it centers upon the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is born in a manger not just so that he could be a sacrifice. It is certainly that. But so that he would be exalted. The angels are the first to sing that joy. The human redeemed, right? Saints of, 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 of church history, we would join that chorus and on and on and on it goes, but unto eternity, because Christ is meant to be the center of all of his purposes. That child that was born is meant to be the ruler of the universe, and because of that, all God's good purposes for us are found in Christ. You exist for something greater than yourself, and it's not just to be the best version of yourself. Who cares about the best version of Nam? It's probably only a little better than the worst version of Nam, right? And in fact, the worst version of Nam is probably a little stronger, a little more angry, cause a little more damage, right? Like, who cares about the best version of you? The best version of what you could do or what you could accomplish in this life is the version that has Christ at the center of your life because he is the center of all of existence. Point C, verse 10. This is God's plan all along. Verse 9 ended with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God does have a definitive plan for this entire universe and for humanity and for the redeemed, the redeemed souls, the redeemed earth, the redeemed universe that he has created when all sin is past. The whole point is that all things will be united in Christ. Things that are in the heavens, things that are on earth, things that we can see, things that we can't see. This is God's plan for the fullness of time. And you know, Galatians 4.4 says that that God sent his son into the world when the fullness of Of time had come so that he would be born, so that he would live, so that he would die. At the right time, he sent his son to be savior of the world. But what Ephesians here reminds us of in the Advent season see, the term Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, it means the coming. But when we think of Advent, yes, the first thing we think of is Christmas because this is Christ coming. This is how he came into the earth. He was born in a manger, etc. cetera. And we love that story because it's the beginning of how he's going to rescue us from our sins, and that's wonderful. But Advent, Christmas, is not the only Advent that Scripture speaks of in terms of Christ. He will come again, right? And because he is coming again, God's plan for the fullness of time when all things are filled out, when everything is done for the fullness of times will be to unite everything under Christ so that he would be all in all. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 said it this way, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You get it? The the impression, the physical image of of the otherwise invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. I just want to fixate your mind To that last phrase of verse 16. That all things are created through him. He is the creator of all things. Amen and amen. But they are created for him. See we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Yes. But we also celebrate the birth. The incarnation. The coming to us of God himself. Our very creator. Taking on human flesh. Because in the end. This is part of God's plan. Right? For the fullness of time to unite all things into Christ heaven, things on earth, all things through him, and all things for him. And as we celebrate this Advent season, we always want to remember, right? That this is Christ our Savior. This is Christ the Lord, the Savior of every sinner who will bow their knee confess their sins and turn to him in faith. But he is the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth and of all eternity and all things eventually, right, will be placed under him. I'll give you a final verse, for Colossians 3, 2 to 4. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is coming again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as we think about this this time of year when we celebrate the advent of Christ. And Lord, remind us that this is not the end of this story, this is not the end of our story, but that we look forward to Christ's second coming when he finishes everything else. Lord, we thank you for your exceeding and uh, immeasurable kindness in sending Christ to die for our sins, to be born in a manger the first time, to arrive the first time, so that we might be set free. But Lord, we look forward to the time that he will return and will make the rest of this universe and this world right. We look forward to that day and we exalt you, glory in the highest, because you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray.